It's good to be together. Thank you for coming to church. And I, uh, I'm here to share with you today. I, we're only covering really one incident, which is the Macedonian vision. But what I'm going to do, because I've been researching this anyhow, due to some of the questions that people ask, and that is, should we be expecting to get turn-by-turn revelations from God telling us what to do or not to do? Okay, and this Macedonian vision is one of the uh, famous verses in the Bible, and people are wondering, how does that work today? Do we Should we expect God to tell us, go here, don't go there, and how does that all work? How do we make decisions? What's God's will for our life? How do you understand this? I'm going to try to cover that today in Sunday school. Let's begin with prayer. Thank you, Lord, that we can gather in your name and we can encourage one another unto love and good works. And we ask you for wisdom concerning the topic and what we do, we, what are we to learn from Paul's Macedonian vision. Thank you for helping us, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So, um, Acts 16, 9 through 10. And let's go to that. A vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing and appealing to him and saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. And when he had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go to Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. Now they were making plans about what becomes Paul's second missionary journey. And now we have we passages, so I think it's the right conclusion that Luke is now part of the party of missionaries. Luke is literally an eyewitness now to, to these events. And there were places they were thinking about going, they didn't go, and now this happens. And we talked about that the last time I taught, taught Sunday school. And so this is certainly uh, very intriguing, very interesting. So in his uh, vision, of this uh, so-called Macedonian vision, there is uh, a person saying, come and help us. Help is in the imperative. It means literally to run to a cry, to run to a cry. And I point out here that that is used in Hebrews 2.18. Hebrews 2.18, where it says, for since he himself was tempted in that which he suffered, he is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted, or literally to help those who are tempted. And so one of the things that we know to be true from the, the whole counsel of God in the Bible, we see this in the Old Testament, we see it in the Psalms, where there are testimonies where someone says, I cried to God for help, and he heard my cry, and he came to my aid. God is, though, is a loving God. Christ is a compassionate Savior. And uh, 
Hebrews 2.18 is telling us that since Jesus was tempted in all points as we are, and yet without sin, he's able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. So we can go to the throne of grace and cry out for help and know that God cares for us and he loves us and he will help us. And that's certainly an important truth that we're learning here. But the bigger issue that comes up in this is the fact that they were trying to decide where to go. Now, somebody want to look up like verses 7, 8, 7 and 8 and therefore and see what the context was. I don't have it on my slide. Now, right now I'm doing this broadcast, so I can't really go backwards. What was Acts 16, 7 and 8? Right. So they wanted to go somewhere else, and the Spirit of Christ said, no, don't go there. That's, that's what I thought. It's been a few weeks since I taught on that. So they were trying to go one place. No, that's not going to happen. Then he has this vision, so they decided to go to Macedonia. I think I pointed out before that they did ultimately end up going to the other place after some intervening missionary work. Yes. What, what was it? What was, just tell me what the place was he wanted to go, but he was forbidden. Lycia. Lycia, right. Mycia. Okay, so that was what that was about. So this is happening now. Luke is there. Paul has this vision. And they sought to go to Macedonia now, concluding. Okay, so... One of the things I want to say about this, as we are going to today lay out categories, how we know God's will, was that this was something they actually discussed and decided. In other words, it wasn't such that every dream that Paul has were marching orders from God. They had to discuss it. Was this significant? Should we take action based on it? Notice it says concluding. Let me quote Dr. Peterson in his commentary on Acts. He says this, quote, Luke records several visions that were given to guide key individuals at significant points in their lives. 731, Stephen. 910, Ananias. 912, Saul. 10.3, Cornelius, and then he lists them. 10, 9 through 17, 19, 11, 5, Peter, and then 16.10, and then later 18.9, 22.17, Paul. So there were a number of such visions. However, in the total record of Acts, as Peterson's, such visions are rare and unexpected by the character's concern. Remember Peter's vision of the sheet coming down with unclean animals? And he was told to eat, and then this interaction, and then some angels show up. There are certainly supernatural things going on to get the gospel out where God intended it to go. And we see that in the book of Acts. 
So that's what Peter's saying. Back to Peterson. <clears throat> we should therefore conclude that this is an unusual form of divine guidance. Peterson says the man who identified himself as coming from Macedonia was standing and begging Paul to cross the Thracian Sea, the northern part of the Aegean, to help the people he represented. We cannot expect the regular guidance of visions and prophecies, says Peterson, in our everyday decision-making. But we are encouraged by Luke's narrative to believe in God's sovereign, overruling, and intervention to direct progress of his word and his people were necessary. So what I did, I wrote an article about this, and I'll be talking about that. I believe that we, I'm not a cessationist. I don't believe the Holy Spirit isn't operating today and, or that God never does a miracle or that the sick are never healed. It'd be crazy to believe that. I keep getting healed. So here I am. I'm So from ICU to the pulpit in, in eight days last week, so it'd be crazy to say, oh, no, God doesn't do that. But the fact is that we, we are under providence. We are under providence. And so, therefore, what we have is uh, God in his providence using things to get us to the right place at the right time. So somehow they were forbidden to go to one place Paul has a vision, and they conclude to go to this other place. But the overall fact that we need to take into account here is the fact that what it is they wanted to do was to go preach the gospel, and that that desire was in accordance with the Great Commission. What they wanted to do was obey what they know is God's moral law given by Jesus Christ. That you shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the world. And then again, when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, you should, be, you should go. And so they were obeying God's moral law, which is to go and preach the gospel. What was guided here was where. And they made the decision. It wouldn't have been a sin against God to preach somewhere else. It's never a sin to preach the gospel. Uh, yes, God, I'll repeat it into the mic. Uh, clarification, it was, they were actually in Mycenae and they were trying to go into Bithynia. Bithynia, okay. They were trying to go to Bithynia, which later they actually did but on the way back. That's it. Thank you. Now, um, the question that everybody asks is, how's that work for me? How's God going to guide me? And I'm going to try to answer that. We'll see how far we get this week. If I don't finish, we'll, we'll do it next week for sure. Continue. I wrote an article about this, and I did a lot of thinking about it, and I bought a book this last week that came out in 1980 that was very helpful to me back then. And 
I want to share some of that with you. So they have the Macedonian vision. They conclude as a group, they must have discussed it, this is where God wants us to go. So they took action. Does that make sense? Now here is a map of where they actually go. You see in the upper left there is Macedonia. Uh, Mycia is there kind of in the middle. Bithynia is where they ended up not going. Troas is on the way. And then, so they have to cross the sea to get to Macedonia. Now, if you remember in a bigger scheme of things that we've been, Eric and I have shared with you, the, the Jews did not like the sea. To them, the sea was evil. It's where Satan and demons lived. And if you died at sea, it was the most horrific thing that could ever happen. They don't build condos on the sea because the sea's evil. Don't assume that the writers of the Bible thought like Americans. And so you see that throughout the Bible. When Jonah ran from God, where did he end up? Out at sea. And where did he go? Down. He went down. He went down. And then he went down into the sea. And then he got spit up and he ended up being a missionary despite himself. Remember? I knew you were going to save these people. That's why I didn't want to go. I hate them. So Jonah was an unwilling missionary, but God used him anyhow. The disciples in the boat, Master, we perish. When I was first on uh, Galilee when I, in 1983 when I was in Israel, I thought, this is hardly bigger than Waconia. Why would you be scared out here? But you see, they were scared of the sea anyhow. The depths were where the demons were. The, de the, the legion of demons went in the swine, unclean, down into the sea where the devil is. The beast that comes out of the sea, Revelation. What does it say at the end of Revelation? The sea will give up the dead. That's hope. What does it say in the new heavens and new earth? There'll be no more sea. A lot of Americans think, oh, no. The Jews are going, wow, praise God. And there's other things like that. Their thinking isn't necessarily the same as ours. Americans will build, they tempt the weather, they build way out there and just tempt the hurricane to blow them away. And they think, well, the government will give me another free house anyhow, I'll just build out here. That's Americans. The Jews valued high ground. So to go to sea, to go to Macedonia, was a serious enterprise that could cost them their lives. And it's interesting that in the book of Acts, what happens at the end, they have a shipwreck. And one of the things they feared the most, Paul ends up on a ship. So that was part of God's guidance, and it wasn't uh, taken lightly. Now I'm going, I've changed the outline from what I had before because there were some verses, not this last Sunday, but a few weeks ago I was preaching and I didn't get to, and it had to do with that passage in Ephesians. So I want to pick up there. So this Macedonian vision revealed God's will that they go preach in Macedonia. 
So we want to discuss today, how is it that we know the will of God? How do we know the will of God? I totally agree. Somebody said the revealed word, word but then I, that doesn't necessarily cover all my questions. Who should I marry if I'm a young man? Um, where should I live? What kind of job should I get? What kind of education should I get? Uh, should I invest and save money for retirement or should I just uh, do something else? There are thousands of questions that we've got to an answer and people want to know the answer to. And there was a theory in pop evangelicalism of the 70s that said that there's perfect will of God and you have to find that out by special guidance. And if you're not good at finding it, you'll just end up in the acceptable will of God, which is something lesser. I hope you haven't heard that. But before 1980, everybody heard it. And a man wrote a book. I just found it again. They republished it in 2004. That it was so well written, it basically refuted that idea. And it's called Decision-Making in the Will of God by Gary Friesen. I read the book in 1980, and I must have gave it to somebody because it's never been in my library. So I got a new one, and I reread the first part, which is the salient part. So we want to talk about uh, what that means. Ephesians 5.17b, this is from my sermon that I didn't finish a few weeks ago because I ended up emphasizing other things instead and didn't quite totally get through my applications. Ephesians 5.17b, this was the issue. But understand what the will of the Lord is. Now, in Paul's exhortation, what does he mean when he's telling us to understand what the will of the Lord is? So understand here, in the Greek, implies a comprehensive and intelligent grasp of God's will. One of the things that was pernicious in the 70s, and this is still coming back. I may do some radio on it soon. <clears throat> and it affected me a lot. When I was a new Christian, I believed that I needed to get personal revelations to know everything. And that God's perfect will was only found by special guidance from the Holy Spirit. And I worked and worked and worked trying to get that. When I was single, should I get married? How is that? What do we do? What does God want? Um, where do I go? What do I do? Where do I work? Uh, what do, everything I had to get guidance for. And then, to make matters worse in my own life, I was reading books by Watchman Nee. And I read those over and over when I was in my 20s. Watchman Nee wrote these three books. He only wrote three books. All of his other books were just notes from his students in the early 20th century in China. Watchman Nee wrote books called The Spiritual Man, 
volume one, volume two, volume three. And in these books, which I read carefully over and over again, trying to be a spiritual man, he was saying that he was talking about body, soul, and spirit, this tripartite person, that the spirit of the regenerate believer is joined to God, and that's where perfection lie. And that the body was the problem, and the soul was stuck in between the body and the spirit. And that Nee's claim was that for the spiritual man, through intuition, that was the word he used, we follow the spirit, and we walk in the spirit, and we know exactly what God wants, because we are intuitive. And so he was teaching all Christians how to become mystics. Wash my knee. And I had teachers who saw me reading that and pulled me aside and said, Bob, that's going to harm you. It's not right. But I wouldn't listen to them. I, I just plunged ahead. I was bound determined I was going to be a spiritual man. And after five years, Watchman Nee's teachings nearly destroyed my life. And when I got delivered from it, I've been warning people against it ever since. Yeah, we plan to do it. Now, I just heard from uh, our daughter that this is coming back. That actual reform people are listening to Watchman Nee. It's just utterly shocking because this is a total utter confusion. God saves the whole person. When God says you will love the Lord with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, he isn't teaching spiritual anatomy. He's teaching the whole person to love God. <laughs> I'm the only one. Anybody ever heard this stuff besides me? You've heard it? You remember that? Okay. And so the, the person is a whole. And so when Paul got his Macedonian vision, they talked it over to decide what to do. The group, the people, they used their mind. They took action with their bodies. They knew what to do. So understand here, in this passage means a comprehensive and intelligent grasp of God's will. You want to know God's will? Study. If you listen to Watchman Nee, he says you want to know God's will, use your intuition. What is that? Divination. Divination, probably. That's really what he's doing, teaching people to practice divination. So anyhow, here... Understand is uh, it's imperative in the Greek. So, you know, with a command from God, Christians are told through the Apostle Paul that God wants you to understand. What was being taught to me when I was listening to false teachers was that your understanding and the intelligence was a hindrance to the work of the Holy Spirit. That's what people thought. They were literally, in the group that I got into, telling people 
to drop out of Bible college. One guy I knew dropped out three weeks before graduation because he didn't want a degree. He believed that if he graduated, that you therefore had a certificate from educational Babylon. Everything was Babylon. If you got a job, economic Babylon. You start a business, corporate Babylon. Get an education, educational Babylon. Go to a regular church, religious Babylon. Use your mind, intellectual Babylon. Therefore, get out of Babylon was the teaching. And then what did that end up meaning? Blindly submitting to the leaders. Because they were the ones that hold for, held, heard from the Holy Spirit. And somebody would go say to the leader, no, this isn't right. And you know what he'd say? You're not listening to the Holy Spirit. That group just blew apart in 1980. That's when, I, that's when this book came out that really helped me. Decision-Making the Will of God, Gary Friesen. This is God's moral will. What is God's will? What is Paul talking about? It's his moral will as revealed through Christ and his apostles. So that's what God wants us to know. What has God said? What has God commanded? Now, this is what is binding and loosing. This is what binding and loosing mean. When in my confusion in the 70s, I thought binding and loosing was binding and loosing demons. So we kept saying, I bind you, Satan. I bind you, Satan. Because we thought anything wasn't right. It was obviously Satan's behind him, so we should bind him. He was bound so much, I can't believe he did anything. <laughs> but uh, later I did some study. I went back and found out binding men. When, when the Pharisees, for example, did binding and loosing, they would make a decision on what was or wasn't allowed. That's what that means. So, for example, in the time of Jesus, they wanted a decision on what constituted work on Shabbat. So they had to decide everything. How big of a rock could you have in your pocket before you had to call it work? How far could you travel on Shabbat before it became work? Could you do this or could you do that? And they had to decide that we're binding and loosing. Could you water your oxen on Sabbath? That was loosed. You're allowed to do that. But could you take your ox by a kid and take him over and tie him up somewhere else? Well, that might be bound. No, that's probably work. And so that's what they were doing. So when Jesus says, whatever you bind on earth shall having been bound in heaven, meant that the apostles were going to speak authoritatively for God. And they're not going to be like the Pharisees and Sadducees who were trying to figure these things out and the rule list got bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. And to the point where Jesus finally said, you tie up heavy loads and lay them on men's shoulders and you won't even lift them with a finger. In every religious system, somehow the top guy doesn't have to do it. Um, you know, the 
Sanhedrin, they exempted themselves from what they bound everybody else to do. So, understand here would be what is bound and what is loose. What are we? What do we have liberty in? And what we? What are we bound to obey? When it says, "Thou shalt not steal," God revealed that. It's reiterated in a new covenant. He's binding us to not take somebody else's stuff. We're bound. Then this understanding the will of the Lord, I'm claiming, is God's moral will revealed through Christ the Apostle. Now, there's a category. I want you to listen very carefully. This is very important. When we say moral will, we're making a category. And the term moral in English would have to do with certain kind of ethics. But we're also, you could use the same Category and use the term revealed will accurately. If God reveals something to be his will, then we know what that is. We have binding and loosing. We use moral the same way. If something's God's revealed will and we transgress it, it's immoral to do it. It's not just talking about sexual ethics, it's talking about the will of God. So sometimes you see the category called moral will of God in books, and sometimes you see revealed will, but the terms are used synonymously. I'm making a third statement here. To understand Christ's will requires an active love for the truth and diligent study. An active Love for the truth. Now, why is that important? I've been accused when I started teaching this stuff in the 80s, which was going against what everybody in popular evangelicalism believed. Uh, I, uh, I was accused of just being an intellectual and don't have anything in my heart. In other words, you, all you have, Bob, is head knowledge. You don't have heart knowledge. You have a deficient faith. It's all in your head. And so they made a distinction. The head knowledge was one thing. The heart knowledge was something else. So they divided up the person, much like Watchman Nee did. Okay. Mind, will, and emotions, and intuition. And he had all these charts and categories. And so they divide up the person. But as I said earlier, as I studied the the Old Testament and the New Testament and understood what was being said, the Hebrew scriptures don't divide man up into these little categories. So when it says to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, that's synonymous with saying love the Lord your God with your whole person. I can't say my head loves God, but my heart doesn't. The whole person loves God. Yes. Uh, I think a good proof of your third point there is you see some prominent uh, uh, wealth and health preachers that say it's God's will for you to be healthy and wealthy. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Let me stop right there because they have to hear you over this. Yeah. Uh, 
one of the people here said that the health and wealth preachers say that it's God's will for you to be healthy and wealthy. Have anybody here heard that? Okay. Well, what are, what are they doing? Well, they're doing binding and loosing. And they're not diligently studying the Word. No, they take... They use... You notice they always use the King James Bible, the health and wealth people. Because that... that some of the ambiguities in there help them. Yeah, or they use the Amplified or something because they got their own agenda. But they misuse the Scripture. All right? So what I'm talking about, that's a good thats a good question to ask. What I'm talking about is doing binding and loosing is deciding if they're right. If the preacher comes into town and says, everybody here that's poor, you're in rebellion against God and you're a failure as a Christian... And you're sitting there and you're poor. You got to decide if you're going to be full of guilt and figure out how to make money better or whether this guy's a false teacher, right? It forces a decision. That's what binding and loosing do. Because, dear ones, Christians want to be pleasing to God. If the Holy Spirit indwells you, which is true for all Christians then what are the things that's true for you and every other Christian where it says trying to learn what is pleasing to the Lord? I know that's in the Bible. I I don't have my concordance open. But that's a desire. So the preacher comes and says, well, you're not doing very good. Look at you. You're driving an old rusty car. You're not trying very hard to please God. You should have a Cadillac and another Cadillac. (laughs) I w- we went to stay at our, our son and daughter-in-law's and um, grandson's place when they were in Hawaii last winter. We went to stay there for a week, and we got Uber to take us to their place. They had a little apartment time. And we're driving down the highway. We go by three car dealers. The first one says Maserati. The next one says Bentley. And the third one says Cadillac. Boom, boom, boom. And the, and the guy was driving in the, I said to the Uber driver, I'm glad they have the Cadillac dealer there for the poor people. Life's <laughs> tough in Florida. Huh? But you see, when somebody makes a claim about what God's will is, it forces all the people who hear that claim to decide whether they're right or wrong. Yes, wrong. I had a friend of mine who was in that system for many years, and he even had a statement while he was there, right at the end of his time to bail out of the health and wealth crowd, was fake it till you make it. Fake it till you make it. That's what you had to do. I actually, yeah, that's a good point, Ron. Somebody told me that they, they, they got out of that movement, that if they were going to one of those churches, they were very concerned about what they drove into the parking lot in. They'd buy a really old, but not rusty Mercedes or something. And so they didn't look so bad going into the parking lot. Looked like maybe at one time he had money or something. But the point is, it, it confuses people because they're claiming something God's will that isn't. Yes. Peter. Yeah, so really, you got two groups here. 
one that are really salad keepers and undiscerning people that are trying to be obedient. Right. <laughs> Christians want to obey Christ. False teaching hurts them because it forces them to do things sometimes that are not even in their best interest in hopes of obeying Christ. So the reason it's necessary for pastors and elders and teachers to study diligently is so that that they don't do that to anybody. In other words, our teaching should be such that if people actually follow it, they're going to be set free, not put in bondage. Does that make sense? And that's why I'm doing this. I'm speaking of somebody who was in bondage for five years, trying to please God in ways that were never going to actually accomplish that. And um, there was a great turning point in my life when I finally said, this isn't right. I'm going to go by scripture alone. So I'm saying to understand Christ's will requires an active love for the truth. Now, why do I say that? If you remember the sermon, <laughs> I cited passage in Thessalonians about those who are deceived by Antichrist because they did not welcome the love of the truth so as to be saved. That's, I love that verse, and here's why it's interesting. The truth sometimes is the, the gospel itself, which is basically what it is. Sometimes it's the very person of Christ who said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. So if you don't love the truth, but you claim you love Jesus, you're in big trouble. And the people who do that are deceived by Antichrist. They're looking for signs and wonders. In that context, that's what Antichrist will do. Well, this must be it. Uh, yes, uh, Brian. Well, that's an interesting point, but yet at the same time, you can be saved by the blood of Christ yet still be in bondage. Right, but God won't leave you there. If you welcome the love of the truth, decomai is the word welcome. It's not translated that in English, but I think it should be. Here's, here's why. I looked up decomai, and I got it all printed out. Decomai is stronger than just a typical word for to, to accept, like paralabano or whatever the other words are. Decomai is a stronger word. And it says even in the Greek dictionary, dekomai, when predicated of a person, means to welcome them into your home. To welcome. There were people in the Gospels who welcomed Jesus. Uh, like the little guy in the tree. Zacchaeus. Um, and so why would I think we should translate the passage that way? Because the truth is in the person of Christ. If you don't welcome the truth, you don't welcome Christ, who is the truth. Here is a watershed. I'm telling you from 45 years of experience, it's a watershed. When you decide 
that if the truth can be known and it's clear that that's where you're going to go, even if it doesn't make you popular, and you're going to follow Scripture alone and do things God's way by His grace, it's a watershed. And that happened in my life in 1980. Uh, before I read this book, this book came out in 1980, Decision Making in the Will of God. But I decided these guys who are claiming to be the hotshot people that always hear from God and won't be corrected by anybody else, I'm not going to listen to them. I'm going to listen to the Word of God. Yes. A watershed means it goes this way or this way. It's a crisis moment. It changes your direction. The direction I was going was doing everything I could to become a mystic who heard the voice of God in my mind and tried to follow that. But we were in a group where, by definition, the guy in charge of the group said, whoever hears from God has authority. But we found out after five years, I did, by definition, he heard from God you can't question that. So he had the authority. And when I questioned the guy who was in charge, they pulled me out of the ministry I had, sent me to another state to try to get me straightened out. Because I questioned that that guy was hearing from God. You want to know how that happened? Actually, it was just a counseling thing. This man was claiming to have a revelation that gave him a ministry called the Ministry of the Father's Love. And, it was, and I knew that he had gotten it from a book written by a psychologist because I was an insider. But then he, so he, he introduces the book called The Ins and Outs of Rejection. And then two months later, he presents it to the public as a revelation he got from God. So that was, a, I said, no, that's not right. Well, then the revelation was that he, this man, was the person on the earth who could directly impart the love of God into people. And that the reason people had problems was that they weren't raised correctly by their parents. And they felt rejected. And because they felt rejected and had low self-esteem, they couldn't feel the love of God. So this guy was going to impart that love of God directly and I had been through Bible college and this was 1979 and I said no that's wrong and here's why Jesus Christ himself claimed to be the one who manifested the love of God to all love comes through Jesus Christ and it's a fruit of the spirit it's not, there's no other intermediary besides Jesus Christ. That was right out of the Gospel of John. And because I said that, I was sent off to another state. They couldn't refute me from the Bible. They just told me I had a bad attitude. That, then this, this book came out in 1980, but I didn't, I don't know, it was probably 82, 83 before I read it. But um, Dear Ones, 
this welcoming the love of the truth and understanding the will of God is essential for your spiritual well-being. Because otherwise you're at the mercy of everybody. The Kenneth Copelands of the world. The Kenneth Hagans, well, he's no longer on the scene of history. His son is. The, the people who want, he, want you to give them all their money, all your money. You know, I mean, the oldest scam in the world is still going on. I'm the great man of God full of faith and power. You have money. If I had your money, God would be really happy. God's happy with you. He's with me. He's disgusted with you. But if you give your money to me, say to false teachers, then you can feel better about yourself and I can go do God's will. Remember when that Jesse Duplantis wanted $84 million to buy a super private jet so he could fly around the world with his heresy? Dear ones, we need to know these things. If we don't know this, we lose our safety net of being deceived. We have to understand the will of God, and that means to study the truth. Now, some people get this all wrong. They, they think that everything's a secret or a mystery, and that only the elite people can understand it. Turn with me to Matthew 13, 13 through 15. Eric has talked about this. It's very important. A lot of people, the emergent church does this. I talked about this when I wrote about the emergent church. They claim that parables are designed to make things easier to understand. Have you heard that? Well, let me read Matthew 13, 13 through 15. Here it is. Therefore, I speak to them in parables. This is Jesus speaking. Because while seeing, they do not see. And while hearing, they do not hear, nor do they understand. In their case, talking about the people who were hardened, the enemies of Jesus. In their case, the prophecy of of Isaiah is being fulfilled, which says, you will keep on hearing, but will not understand. You will keep on seeing, but will not perceive. For the heart of this people... Now remember, what's the heart? The whole inner person. That part of the human that is to turn to God in faith and obedience or in rebellion, as the case may be. The heart of this people has become dull. With their ears, they scarcely hear. And they have closed their eyes. Otherwise, they would see with their ears see with their eyes, hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and return, and I would heal them. And where was that? That was in Isaiah, when Isaiah was called to the ministry in Isaiah 6. Isaiah said, here I am, send me. And God said, I am going to send you, but here's what's going to happen. They're just going to be hardened. They're, They're going to hate you. And Isaiah goes, how long? Until all this happens. So when Jesus comes on the scene, he speaks in parables because they were under the judgment of hardening. They didn't want the truth, so they just got more hardened. The disciples, he took aside and explained the meaning of the parable. We want to know what it means, so we're willing to seek that 
by the teachings of Jesus and his apostles. Now let's get some categories in front of us here. These are very, very important. Deuteronomy 29, 29. You've probably heard Eric and I talk about this one quite a bit. The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things revealed belong to us and to our sons forever, that we may observe all the words of this law. Now, there's a synonymously parallel construction. The things revealed, see that in green there, the things revealed, and all the words of this law. Do you see though? See that parallel? That's what's revealed, what God has spoken. Now, in the context, was the blessings and cursings. Very visual demonstration. Mount Ebal, what was it? Mount Ebal, Mount Gerizim? What were the two mounts they got on? And they echoed back and forth. If any man, and it lists all the curse, cursed be this, cursed be that, cursed be the, cursed, cursed. Then if any man, and then it talks about the blessing. Blessed will it be in the city, in the country. Blessed will be his offspring. So is the blessings and cursings. Now, some scholars think that what is not revealed is the details. Well, what's that going to look like? Somebody might say, I don't really want to obey Yahweh. I got some other ideas I'd like to try. But how bad is the curse? Maybe it won't actually hit me. I know people, I've talked to people who've done that over my 45 years of ministry. People grew up in Christian homes and they don't really know Christ and they're saying, I wonder what I can get by with before the curse will really hit me. Well, you're tempting God. Well, I think I'll try this much and not that much. But when you love God, you want to do his will. So the secret things are now revealed. The word secret is behind our word occult. In the context, the secret things are the unrevealed future, especially exactly what would transpire if Israel rejected Yahweh and his promises. Turned out they were taken into captivity, which was predicted. This comes in the section of blessings and cursings. Let me quote Dr. Craigie, his commentary on Deuteronomy. Quote, that is to say, one thing was certain and revealed, namely, the words of this law. Craigie says the law placed on the people the responsibility of obedience, the result of which would be God's blessing in the land they were going in to possess. The general principle was clearly revealed. Obedience would lead to God's continued blessing, but disobedience would bring about the curse of God. To go beyond that and speculate about the future, says Craigie, future things, the secret things, was not man's prerogative. Unquote. We don't know the future other than what's revealed in Bible prophecy. We don't know. If anyone knew the future, 
They definitely could be health and wealth gospel because they'd get rich. You'd know if silver was going to go up or down. You'd know if gold was going to go up and down. You'd know if stocks were going to go up and down. You'd know which company was going to prosper. You would have bought Amazon stock at its initial public offering or whatever, okay? But nobody knows. So we just don't. The claim we know is to go into the occult. Yes. And sometimes God reveals outwardly his will. People disregard it. And the earth opens up and swallows them. That did happen. <laughs> That's kind of a bad outcome. But guess what? When the earth opened up and swallowed them, what was at issue was absolutely essential. You know what was issue? issue? Who speaks for God? There were some people who say, is Moses only the one who speaks for God? Remember, God chose Moses brought him up in Sinai, gave him the Ten Commandments. People made a calf. He went. Back, he broke the tablets, went back up, got more. He had a tent of meeting. People challenged that. No, we can all have our tent of meeting. Now we got evangelicals claiming that. I did a seminar on that 15 years ago. We have our tent of meeting and we'll go in there and we'll hear from God. Well, they tried that in the Old Testament and the earth opened up and swallowed them. So I would suggest that's a bad idea. If Moses spoke for God, then you got to listen to Moses. If Jesus spoke for God, Jesus and his apostles, then that's the foundation. And that's what we listen to. Those who pry into what God has not revealed are practicing the occult. That's what occult looks like. People want to know about the realm of the spirits. They want to know how to achieve peace. We did, we're doing a series of podcasts on kundalini yoga from someone who just got delivered out of it. All kinds of secrets that God has revealed led this young lady into ruin. But God saved her out of it. But what God has revealed, we must search out, cherish, and obey. What happens if we disobey? We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. We go to the throne of grace. We ask God to help us. And we find help and grace and mercy in time of need. Hebrews 4.16, I just very roughly alluded to it. I've got a statement here in my notes. Those who reject God and his promises often try to use magic or the occult to pry into the future or to stave off bad faith. Whatever happens, those who reject Yahweh are cursed, and that will not be good. Occultists look for peace. How many, they, if you haven't heard it, you, that the series of podcasts on Kundalini Yoga, we haven't quite finished it yet, is amazing. Uh, but people are looking for peace. How often do you see on TV commercials somebody sitting on a yoga mat? <laughs> it's everywhere. They're trying to get peace. So, you know what the message of the false prophets consistently was, according to Jeremiah? Peace, peace, when there is no peace. In a few cases, as in the case of this Amy, who we interviewed, 
She found out at the end of it all, it was demonic. It was Satan who actually wanted to destroy her. You definitely got to hear episode 12 where we share our testimonies. Occultists look for peace while rejecting the revealed truth of the Bible. They say peace, peace, when there is no peace. So when Paul is saying to understand what the will of God is, one of the most important categories, and I'm going to be talking about some categories. I'll continue this next week. Uh, one of the most important one is God's moral will, or if you want to say it this way, God's revealed will. 1 Thessalonians 4, 1 and 2. 1 Thessalonians 4, 1 and 2. Finally, then, brethren, we request and exhort you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us instruction as to how you ought to walk, and please God, notice that in red, how you ought to walk and please God. That's the will of God. That's what we want to know. Doesn't mean we, we should be presumptuous and say, oh yeah, of course I'm pleasing God. Let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. But we do want to know how we ought to walk and please God. Everyone born of the Spirit is born with that desire to please God. Only Jesus perfectly did it. Jesus said, I always do the things that please the Father. Just as you actually do walk. So he's encouraging them. He's not saying, I don't think you're doing this. But our instruction was that you should know how you ought to walk and please God. But that you excel still more. There's always growth because we're not perfected. We don't have our resurrected bodies. For you know, now notice where this came from. For you know what commandments we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. Paul, Peter, James, those who are apostles who wrote scripture and the prophets who wrote scripture like Luke and John Mark, they received these by the authority of the Lord Jesus. Under the old covenant, as you mentioned, there were people who said, oh, no, it's not really Moses and the prophets. It's going to be somebody else. Nahab and Abihu. Nadab, who was that? Nadab, probably got it wrong. And they wanted to do it their way. Well, don't listen to Moses. We got our own plan. Same issue under the New Testament. I wrote an article rebuking a guy's book called Experiencing God. And so then I got into a little debate by one of his followers that didn't like that I corrected the guy. But see, I just said it's an inadequate category. Let me tell you something. Ananias and Sapphira experienced God. But it wasn't good. It doesn't say Abraham experienced God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. It says Abraham believed God. Abraham believed and obeyed. He went out to a land he would afterward receive for an inheritance. So this is about pleasing God 
everybody on the earth is experiencing God in the sense that he caused the rain to fall on the just and the unjust. His providence rules over all things. He gives us seed time and harvest, and so on, as we see in Genesis. But what we want to know is the things revealed. The secret things belong to God. The things revealed belong to us and our children forever and ever. So what the Christian wants to know is how we ought to walk and please God and that the commandments of God were given by the authority of the Lord Jesus. That's what binding and loosing is. Now, next week, I'll continue on this. If you want to print it out, I wrote an article about this called God's Will and Christian Liberty. we got some more categories. I want to lay out next week what Christian liberty means. And I want to deal with this issue that there's somehow a good will of God, an acceptable will of God, and a perfect will of God, and we've got to do something extra to find the perfect part of it. That's not what that passage is saying. I want to talk about Christian liberty. CIC, March, April 2003, issue number 75. If you want to get the book that originally helped me understand this, it's used, you can get on used books, Decision Making in the Will of God, Gary Friesen, originally published in 1980, republished with editions in 2004. So next week we'll start out and go from here, and I want us to be settled. And what does it mean to live a life that's pleasing to God? How can we please God? Wow, what a, what a question to have answered. I don't want to wait and find out in eternity, depart from me. It's too late. We need to know now, don't we? Let's pray. Thank you, dear Lord, for your goodness and kindness and mercy, and that you cared about us enough to send your son, Jesus Christ, to die for sins, that we might believe the gospel and might love him and serve him by your grace. Thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.